You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 young street and tell them aaron sent you Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe and review our show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. If you review our show, I will, as always, send you a comic from my personal collection. Just DM me, follow us on social media, at SpeechBubblePod. With me today, we have a writer all the way from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Usually, you know, our show is centered on people from Toronto, but the subject matter of his latest graphic novel is very Toronto-centric. He is the proprietor of Dirty Water Comics, and his latest book is called Christie Pitts, and it's about a race war, Canada's only race war that happened uh, in the 1930s when uh, Jews and Italians united against Nazi sympathizers at the height of uh, Hitler's power. And there was a huge knockdown, dragout fight in Christie Pitts Park in Toronto. He's also uh, worked on a book called Canoe Boys, which features a group of Canadian university students who dropped out of university, bought a canoe, and went all the way to Mexico by canoe. Uh, the artist on Christie Pitts is uh, Doug Phaedro. He's the writer. He is Jamie Michaels. Welcome, Jamie. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. 
Uh, I heard about your book before I heard about you because CBC was running all these articles about Christy Pitts and this, uh, you know, historical time in the 1930s. And it's something that I'm connected to a little bit because I train uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at Toronto BJJ, which is right across the street, literally from Christy Pitts. So I always ran into the plaque and being a Jewish person myself, I would read that plaque at Christy Pitts and be like, what is this? What is this race riot that happened? So I'm really glad that finally somebody did the deep dive and made it a graphic novel. So it's really awesome. Yeah, we're really excited about sharing this history. I think even knowing about it previously, you're in the minority of our readership. Okay. I think it's such a niche story and it really shouldn't be and doesn't have to be. Because Christy Pitts is a Canadian story and I learned about it when I was 27 years old. You know, I'm also a jiu-jitsu practitioner like yourself. So I'm involved in the, kind of the world of combat sports. Right. So there's that appeal to me um, in the background. I'm a Jewish Canadian. I studied history. I studied politics. And this is Canada's largest race riot. This is 10,000 people brawling in the streets. Where's our Heritage Minute? Yeah, totally. So it was, it was kind of important for me, having been surprised by this history, let me surprise a few other people too. And like beyond the plaque, I don't really know a lot about what happened and why it happened. And, you know, it's sort of been lost to history. So you said you found out about it when you were 27. Tell me that story. How did you first find out? I just finished my first long-form graphic novel project. We were out celebrating the $27 we made on buying a case of beer. And people were trading stories, and Christy Pitts came up as an anecdote. And somebody said, yeah, you know, Jamie, like Christy Pitts. I went, yeah, totally. I'll be right back. I'm going to the washroom. And like many millennials, I pulled up my cell phone. I pretended to take a pee. And I did the Wikipedia. Oh my God, it's Canada's largest race ride. How is it a stop in Wikipedia that I've never heard of before? And it's an amazing story. So from there, I became obsessed. I went to the archives. I got old newspaper microfiche from the day. This is really a historically grounded graphic novel. So tell our listeners who may not be familiar what we're talking about. What happened? What was the inciting incident for this uh, race riot? Yeah, I'll give you a breakdown here. The year is 1933. Hitler has recently come to power. Germany is Nazified. All around the world, um, reports like front page headlines are saying these are the atrocities that the Nazis are committing against the Jewish people. And one of the best reporters of the day was actually out of Toronto. That's Pierre Van Passen, uh, a reporter for the Toronto Daily Star. So you could even say that after they had censorship in Nazi Germany, the Jews in Toronto knew more of what was happening in Germany than the Jews of Germany did. Wow. So we're talking this really horrifying crossroads in history. Uh, Canada is obviously not Nazi Germany. I don't even know if you call the people in Canada as Nazi sympathizers, although there's certainly press articles sympathetic to the Nazi cause being printed in major papers in Canada. But it was certainly a Canada that is, unlike the Canada we know today, was rife with anti-Semitism. So you're looking at Jews that are being de facto barred from living in certain restricted areas. You're looking at Jews that can't join professional associations, become doctors uh, at certain hospitals, professors at certain universities. So this is, this is a Canada very unlike the Canada that we know today. And, and from there, in kind of this, this move to ghettoize uh, the Jews in a de facto way in Canada, a lot of young Jews said, we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to stand up. We're going to plant our feet and say, here things will be different. At, at the same time, you see in the city, swastika clubs emerging. And I was horrified to see this when I was doing my research. There's a, a gripping photo 
on the front page of one of the broadsheets of the Toronto Daily Star of a young man in Toronto smiling, wearing the swastika emblazoned upon his chest. And if that's not scary enough as it is, this is a young dude in 1933. He can't sew. His mother stitched that on. <coughs> wow. That's shocking. Like, it's, we, I think as Canadians, we sort of hold ourselves in high regard that stuff like that could never happen in Canada. But it did. Like, this is a Canada that I've never really known. Yeah, and I think that's what surprised me as well. And that's what I'm trying to get across in the comic here. So you've got these, these being the social conditions, maybe as the Tinder... And then, and this is the Tinder, the Spark, not the app, to clarify here. Right. And and that's the Tinder in the situation. And at a public ballpark at Christie Pitts right here in Toronto, you have these guys and they unfurl a swastika flag at a public baseball game between a Jewish and Italian team and an Anglo-Canadian team. And they fly this flag at Christie Pitts with a swastika and complete mayhem breaks loose across the night. You've got 10,000 people brawling in the streets and... We're talking improvised weapons, hockey sticks, lead pipes, fists, but still a Canadian story, so nobody's allowed to get killed. Right. Was it a spontaneous thing? Like, as soon as they unfurled this swastika flag, people were just like, let's go, and it was on? Yeah, and you see this this real um, rallying of both communities. You see anti-Semites who are maybe what you would call back then everyday Canadians, although I use that term quite loosely. And they're taking the streets saying, this is my chance to finally beat up a Jew. Right. And then you also see the Jewish community saying, you know what? And the Italian community saying, no, this is where we're taking a stand. And based on the proximity of Christie Pitts, if you look to the southeast, that's kind of the heart of the you know, Kensington Market, the Jewish neighborhoods. So you've got a lot of Jewish reinforcements coming from those neighborhoods. And, and alternatively, you're having these Anglo-Canadians that are coming down from the uh, northwest there. or the north. Yeah, northwest. Let's confirm that one there. Right. And, they, and they're kind of meeting in open battle in the streets. Wow. Yeah. So did it spill out of Christie Parks or uh, Christie Pets or was it confined no, to that? No, into the surrounding streets, the neighborhoods. It really spilled across the city. Um, we actually include a map of the riot in the book that we got from the Daily Star where they had a reporter retrace the route. And we're talking like windows being smashed, property being damaged. But, but ultimately, I think this is one of the rare, evenly balanced moments of spontaneous violence where, like I said, nobody is killed. And in the aftermath, Mayor Stewart went, okay, this balagan can't be worth it. Too much of a ruckus. We're going to ban the swastika from flying in Toronto. And there we see kind of the genesis of this idea in Canada of anti-hate speech, not legislation, but at the very least policy ahead of its time. Not because Mayor Stewart was such a great Samaritan, but simply because it wasn't worth the hassle. Right, because they had to fix all the damage and cost money. It's not good headlines, hire more police. It's it's a schlep. Right, right, exactly. That's crazy. I mean, so I guess if you wanted to call like a like a winner for the race riot, did do you think the Jews and Italians uh, won? Did they did they did they beat the anti Semites? I think that's a great question, and we actually we talk about it a little bit in the postscript of the book, in that no race riot really has a winner, but in in the grand arc of of how we represent and narrate history, I think that. You have to take a stand. If you're a Jewish Canadian living in these precarious, uncertain times, I would have been there at Christie Pitts with my fist clenched. Right. Absolutely. So I think that going forward, a lot of people, especially in my time working on this project, wanted to tell me, hey, my grandfather was at Christie Pitts and it was the proudest moment of his life. Or my uncle was at Christie Pitts and he always talked about how he, he was never more proud of anything. So I think that for a lot of people there, it was a victory. Right. And 
I guess one of the disturbing things, though, is you're seeing history repeat itself. A lot of people saw the election of Donald Trump as, as you say, like, this is my chance to voice my true feelings. Maybe not beat up a Jew, but tell them what I think. And, uh, you know, immigration and those sorts of things. If you're, if you're like uh, anti-immigration, if you're, if you already have sort of uh, white supremacist leanings, uh, the election of Trump sort of gave you uh, at least permission to voice something that you may not have voiced in society before. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of this sort of thing with like Charlottesville and, and that kind of thing. So your, your book cannot be more relevant. Is that sort of why you put it out at this point? Yeah, I think all the points you're making are quite true that when, you, when you're in a culture where rhetoric and vitriol is embraced by public figures, it becomes more common on the streets. It becomes more socially acceptable. So I agree with that. You know, a wild thing, um, I'd like to mention that before, I, I've been working on this book for years. And when I started, it was before the most current incarnation of the American presidency. Okay. It was before Charlottesville. It was before Pittsburgh. So I guess my hope going forward is I'd really love to write uh, less relevant books. <laughs> I, I don't know, because it's sort of weird, because it's like, with all the like tragedy and all the stuff that people are like, you know, this could never happen and it's starting to, you know, boil over, you're also seeing success. Like the relevance of your work also puts the work, you know, at greater attention in terms of media. So it's a, it's a weird dichotomy. It, it's absolutely a weird dichotomy. Yeah. Again, like I said, I'd much rather be irrelevant than in the public eye if that's the trade off. Right. But, but I think that now because that's the world we live in, we've got this return to hateful times and hateful conditions, pick the book up, give it a read, because this this is when we are depressingly relevant. Right, and maybe the book can be like a warning and, you know, it can start to resonate with people as to how uh, these conditions arise and then you can put a stop to it in your own community if you see it. A hundred percent, and I think, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily a book that is confined to a Jewish experience and a Jewish lesson, but it's kind of a Canadian or a human being lesson and simply what's hateful, you know, unto you, don't do unto your neighbors. Right. We're talking, you know, these, these aren't radical truths that we've, we're trying to explain to the people. We're saying, look at these social conditions and look at how violence erupted. We're not saying it's the same thing now as it is in 1933, but there are some parallels and maybe we should look at them. Right. For sure. For sure. Or else you might be seeing something like Christy Pitts, you know, in the future. Um... I wanted to sort of walk it back a little bit and get into sort of a, a deeper conversation about you and how you found comics. Um, when you when you grew up, did, were you into comics? What kind of comics were you were you reading? Oh, a hundred percent. I was uh, what they call growing up a big nerd, <laughs> so uh, I was really into comics. I would say it's tough to pick, you know, a favorite incarnation. A lot of the classic Marvel, X Men. Um, Spider-Man, and I remember being a kid and being so riled up saying, man, spiders aren't that strong. Why is there no Tiger-Man? Right. Which is, you know, I think the logical, if you're eight years old, that's mm -hmm. the progression. It's so, the equivalent strength of a spider, though. I know now <laughs> as an adult, but at that age, I didn't know what the word equivalent meant, so I just became angry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I remember drawing these Tiger-Man comics and being like, this is going to be the next big thing, because tigers are obviously stronger than spiders. Right. But uh, I'm still waiting for that. If you if you got an agent that's interested in Tiger Man, like direct them my way. Totally, totally. Yeah. So how did you go from being a fan to wanting to start your own uh, self-publishing imprint with Dirty Water Comics? 
Yeah, so I think for me, um, writing has always been a passion for me. I've probably been making comics actively since Tiger Man, TM. And uh, when I was a young man, um, I canoed from Winnipeg to Mexico. So you were one of the guys in, in the Canoe Boys book? 100%. Allegedly. I mean, this, these stories are, for the record, fictional. Okay. So the first graphic novel you did was this Canoe Boys, as I mentioned. Yeah. Tell me what would possess you and your buddies to go, you know, to Mexico in a canoe. We were in a bet to win 24 Moosehead Loggers there, so our hands were tied. <laughs> who, who bet you? Oh, a friend of ours that said we couldn't do it. Okay. So, I mean, plot twist, it's actually faster if you fly to Mexico. Right. And you can actually buy moose heads for less than the cost of groceries. But it's a learning experience, and we're glad to have been a part of it. So, how did this begin? Like, were you just sitting around, and somebody bet you that you couldn't go to Mexico? Yeah, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek when I say it. I, I grew up canoeing. I've always been a big fan of the great outdoors. We've got the greatest playground in the world right here in Canada, our backyard. Right. And there's something of being that age, I think, especially as a young person, feeling dissatisfied with the status quo. I'm sure many people go through it, especially at that university age where so many factors are in flux. And I said, I've done this for three years. I know what it tastes like. I'm buying a canoe. I'm hitting the river. Who wants to go with me? Okay. Yeah. Big adventure. Big adventure. And then I came back um, and I wanted to kind of share that experience in the graphic novel form. I'd also done a little bit of freelance comic work out of the UK, um, doing medical education comics for children. Okay. So I think that work is very meaningful and very important, um, and it's it's such a accessible way to share sometimes information that can be scary or concerning. Right. Um, but at the same time, I also wanted as a creative to work on my own stories, have my own intellectual property, um, and I thought, you know what? I can do this. How hard can it be to run a publishing company out of the trunk of a Dodge Charger? Out of the trunk of a Dodge Charger? So what, you'd have your comics in the trunk and you just like... And you just drive them over to the post office and sometimes you uh, have a business meeting with an illustrator in the backseat. Right. Wow, that's awesome. So how did you hook up with the illustrators that you hooked up with? Because, you know, you, you, you didn't draw these comics. You had some very great collaborators. The art's fantastic on Christy Pitts. So. Oh, I'm, I'm blown away by the art on Christy Pitts. Um, so we had an open hiring through our website, dirtywatercomics.com. And, you know, we'd had some success with previous work. Some of our digital material had been archived by the Library of Congress. So we had a little bit of heat going. We were doing well. And we had about 50 applicants from all over the world. And I was going through and I went, wow, this one guy is incredible. I wonder where he's out of. And he was out of Winnipeg. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Ah, it's, too, it's Providence. we got to do it. And one thing I liked in hiring Doug, in addition to being a terrific artist, he's outside the Jewish community. So I can kind of bounce storyboards off of him and bounce illustration pieces off of him and say, Hey, what are you getting out of this? So I get a sounding board for some ideas to see how universal they are versus how niche they are. And I'm still incorporating both, but it gives me a bit of a compass. Yeah, because sometimes when you're Jewish and you're talking about a Jewish sub subject matter or you're part of any minority, like I'm a person with a disability, and you're talking about that subject matter that, that is so relevant to you, sometimes you miss that you know some of the stuff that you know and take for granted, other people aren't going to, right? Like you need, you need somebody to explain it. Yeah, 100%. And also, though, I guess speaking any group as well, you don't want to lose some of that essence of that, the, the vibrancy of that group. So it's what you keep and what you don't. Uh, we use a lot of Yiddishisms in the book. We've got a reference guide at the back. If you need to pick it up, we call it a guide for the perplexed. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I think that Doug was really helpful in helping us navigate that balance of what we keep for the community because it's important. It's the essence of the community and what we 
guide you towards to be accessible. Right. Yeah. And then with Canoe Boys, was it just as organized? Did you do another? Did you do a call out for that as well? Um, at, at that stage, we were, we were emerging um, just as like a group of friends who were making comics. And a lot of people in the neighborhood were making comics too. So that one, I worked with a friend of mine, um, Evan Collis, also a terrific illustrator. But it's kind of like, you know, you spit in your hand, you shake hands, and that's good enough. Right. Right. What's the comedy or the comic community like in, uh, in Winnipeg? Because I know that Toronto has a very, very vibrant comics community. But give me a little flavor of what it's like in Winnipeg. Oh, I think it, it's absolutely vibrant. We've got a lot of very interesting people making very interesting stuff. And I like it because it feels collaborative. Like you can knock on someone's door, hey, I'm working on a piece. Give me your thoughts on this. Um, I've got a friend, Laverne Kandirsky. He's known as a colorist. He won an Eisner Award. And when I'd be working on a piece, hey, Laverne, um, can I ask you a question? Do you want some color? I don't, but I have a question. Yeah, bring it over. So I kind of like that. It it still feels open door. It still feels very supportive. So I'm really, I'm blown away by it. I love being part of the community there. So do you guys have conventions? Yeah, and I I like to say that I'm kind of just getting into this world. Okay. Coming from a guy that has a traditional, I've got a master's in fiction. So I'm coming coming from a traditional prose background. Um, So I'm still getting into like, let's say the niche comic con and comic event universe so i haven't dipped my toes in yet but i'm looking forward to this upcoming year yeah that's really cool and i mean it's kind of brazen to be like i'm a comic fan i like comics i want to start my own comic company i want to start doing like a graphic novel and that sort of thing so what gave you the chutzpah to be able to to be able to pull that off well life's too short to have a little chutzpah you know so (laughs) (laughs) um yeah for me i just knew we were telling important stories especially with Christy Pitts. Right. And I thought, this this is the time for this story. If we roll in later to a larger publishing company or an American imprint or what have you, that's fine. But I'm not waiting to spread a message. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines here. And I mean, we're really, in many in many ways, a cowboy comic book company. You know, we are we are registered to like, I don't know, my parents' garage. Give them a line. They're very nice people. Don't <laughs> nice. swear in your correspondence. Okay. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're lovely people. We, I mean, we're really selling books out of the back of this Dodge Charger. To fund this print run, I went helicopter firefighting for four months because it's the quickest way to hire an illustrator while you're working on grant applications. Helicopter firefighting? Yeah, it's like regular firefighting but better for your Instagram. Whoa. So that, so you're like a man of all traits. Well, I feel like you do what's necessary to bring forth the stories you feel the most important. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, firefighting, do I enjoy it? Absolutely. Is it good for my Instagram? Definitely. Check out the pictures. But what, what I'm really focused towards and everything supports is making works like Christy Pitts. Yeah, that's awesome. And you come from a long tradition of... Uh, you know, historical graphic novels like Mouse definitely comes to mind. You're sort of following in Art Spiegelman's footsteps. Yeah, I feel like in good faith, I can't even mention someone, you know, I look up to so much as Art Spiegelman, the same sentence as myself. You know what I mean? Like I'm so blown away by his work and it's terrific. But I feel that in a different approach with somewhat different subject material around the same time period, we're also doing some cutting edge stuff. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So in terms of the collaborative process uh, with Doug, yeah, how did you guys sort of divvy up the work? Like you're the writer. Um, it's sort of, you know, you, you found out about Christy Pitts and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but, you know, we all know that comics 
are mostly about the artist. Like it wouldn't be a comic without the artist. Right. So what was the collaboration like? How did you divvy up the actual work? I make the joke that uh, I'm the ideas man and Doug is the talent. Okay. Because he really, he really is. When you open the book and you see the illustrations, you go, wow, this guy is creating a universe. So the process is I was responsible for the research. I wrote the initial script and I did the storyboards. I draw some very lackluster stick figures that I'm impressed by, but nobody else is. And then I kind of say, all right, Doug, these are my breakdowns, but it is a collaboration. Doug might say, I see the way you've done this fourth panel. I think this angle might be better suited. So we're kind of going back and forth. Um, but I, I'm the originator of the characters and the story and also all the archival material that's incorporated into the backgrounds. And then Doug kind of brings the story to life from there. That's awesome. Yeah. So is this, this is a fictional story with Christy Pitts in the background? Yeah, that's correct. So the intention was to have it narrative driven, but all the history to be very well researched because if there's not a story at the heart of it, it's hard to get behind. Right. Um, you can pick the most interesting moment in history. If your story is lackluster, if it's not really character focused, who cares? It becomes just an event that happens. Yeah. So I didn't want to tokenize these characters. I was hoping to really bring the story to life through the biography of a neighborhood. I really was a big fan of like early Will Eisner, like A Contract with God, 1978. Come on, wow. I mean, first graphic novel. First graphic novel. Like this is some amazing stuff, but the storytelling is good. Yeah, people, totally. people are so blown away by the medium, I feel, and the idea that we're doing such news type of storytelling, they lose the story. So I'd say that's probably my biggest influence as a graphic novelist is that original Contract with God trilogy. And I wanted to do the same thing where you follow each character for a single chapter and as their threads weave together, you understand the social conditions of the day, but also like you're a young guy in Toronto. You want to date chicks as the first person in your family in 2,000 years. You want to chase after girls and go drinking and have fun and play baseball. And I want that to roll into the book as well. Right. So they all converge at Christy Pitts. That's correct. Okay. That's really awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Uh, you also come from like a long tradition of Jews in comics. Some of the most legendary creators, uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, Art Spiegelman, are Jewish. How do you feel about uh, adding your name to that list? It's an impressive list. I'm happy to be on it. I don't know if I can live up to it, but every day we aspire towards the sun, right? That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, big names there. I think historically speaking, there's something that's very Jewish about comic books. Um, I think they're an accessible medium for everyone. But if you look at the origins of the New York and the Golden Age, these are guys that have been pushed out of traditional aspects of the publishing industry. They're guys that couldn't get jobs in traditional print journalism. That's why they're in comics in the first place. So, sorry, go ahead. And they really made their the medium their own, like in a medium that was completely dismissed right. as like something you don't want to do or you're, or you're waiting for your novel opportunity or your advertising opportunity. Yeah. You know, comics were thought of as like the redheaded stepchild, but all these Jews sort of made it their own. Yeah. I think it's kind of being dealt a hand at the bottom of the barrel and saying, no, we're going to create a new mythology. So it's, it's so incredible. And I'm happy to be part of this uh, movement as it crosses over to kind of like the graphic novel era and more literary focused works. And yeah, just uh, keep my name on the list, you know? Do you think you're going to continue uh, with Dirty Water Comics? You're going to continue going uh, this route of these sort of lesser known historical stories? Uh, not necessarily lesser known. Our work will always be story driven first. Um, no capes, no tights. Okay. And, and that's kind of where I feel I do my best work as a writer. I'm still interested in history. My editor told me when I came on this podcast that 
I'm not allowed to pitch anything until Christy Pitts is officially released. Right. But uh, we're definitely going to have some more products that are historical coming up on the burner, as well as some that are just kind of semi-autobiographical. By the time this airs, uh, Christy Pitts will have already launched. But uh, you guys have a really amazing launch event planned at the Best Setic Synagogue. Tell me about uh, what's going to go on there. You know, it's it's. I usually go no spoilers, but since we're airing afterwards, I'll give listeners a bit of a sneak peek here. Okay. Um, we're expecting a few hundred people at the very least. And what we do is we tell the story of Christy Pitts. And while we're telling it, we do a reading. We get four readers to be these four main characters in the story, reading in character. And in 1933... Max Bear fought Max Schmeling at a crowd of over 60,000 people at Yankee Stadium. One of the wildest boxing matches of all time, because he would be the number one heavyweight contender. This was the guy from Cinderella Man, right? Yeah, absolutely. And he's in Cinderella Man, he's really painted as quite the villain. Right. You know, he's this affluent Jew at the height of the Depression, slapping dollar bills on the table and sneering down at people. So, you know, it depends how you paint a canvas here. Max Bear, when he was in the lead-up, was a young Jew from California who for the first time was going to wear the Star of David on his trunks, and he was going to fight Hitler's favorite boxer at Yankee Stadium. Wow. So, I mean, there's, there's electricity in the air, and if you're any, any young person in the world, Jewish or not, this was the fight to catch. So we have this incorporated into the book as a radio broadcast because you couldn't obviously get it on television. It would come to movie theaters and reels a month later. Right. So during the reading of this boxing match on the radio, we hide two boxers in the audience and they come out and they just throw fists. Wow. Yeah. So it's a little spicy for a book launch. And uh, if anyone hears this before the launch, please don't alert the uh, hosting venue, but uh, some surprises for everybody here. That's going to be incredible. I, I can't wait to see um, when we release this, definitely send us some photos and we can, uh, we can a- promote them on our social well, media. Well, for, for sure. sure. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming in. Is there anything else, uh, you want to tell people about Christy Pitts, about Canoe Boys, about anything else you have coming up? Yeah, just real quick. Nobody really makes a comic book by themselves. If they say that they do, I don't believe them. Um, I just want to give a shout out to our team. Uh, Doug Phaedro, incredible illustrator, such a talent. Helen Surgener, um, our editor. Jordan Stranger, our graphic designer who couldn't do our work without. And if anyone's interested in the project, we'll ship it right from the back of our Dodge Charger to your door. Check out our website, www.dirtywatercomics.com. And can we follow you on social media as well? Absolutely. My mother does. Why not you? Check us out on Facebook at Dirty Water Comics, on Instagram at Dirty Water Comics, and on Twitter. We couldn't quite get the last character, but at Dirty Water Comic, no S. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in, Jimmy. This has been an honor. Man, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. See you later. And we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.